0: Why did I say Spanish? I don't know. <laughs> Standard
1: Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 167 of the Standard Issue Pod Scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am delicious. And that's news
0: just in from E17 Mosquitoes. Where's your most annoying one? Mm, just under my bra strap. Oh, always, oh, always. Just the ones that's the the point that you just can't reach it. Exactly that. So yeah. then I have to get help to get some like, anti sand on it and I feel.
1: I feel vulnerable guys I feel vulnerable
0: (laughs) well you're talking to two women who live alone I've had to build contraptions (laughs) that I can reach bits on my back with stuff
1: I think my favorite thing because obviously until fairly recently I too lived alone was when I got horrible sunburn because it was in the patch of my back that I hadn't been able to reach with the sun cream so I tried to get after sun on it by just spreading it on my bed and then sort of writhing about (laughs) on it
0: didn't work (laughs) I'm trying to do it now it's quite hard It's making me itch this conversation. Oh, sorry. Let's move on. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I don't think I could beat a grizzly bear in a fight.
1: I'm keen to know why you've been thinking about that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, there's a couple of weeks ago there was a survey and it has just come to my attention in which they asked British and American people if they thought they could beat certain animals in a fight. Yeah. uh-huh and yeah the answers were full-on insane <laughs> a really <laughs> troubling amount of people six percent of american people thought i'm guessing quite a lot of them were men yeah thought they could beat a grizzly bear in a fight i mean they also asked british people and british people also thought they could beat a grizzly bear in a fight but not as many of them which i kind of don't understand because i think americans actually probably have seen one yeah. Like if anyone was going to have this fantasy idea of of being able to take down Yogi Bear, well, actually, maybe I could take down <laughs> Yogi Bear, but although seventy two percent of people thought that they couldn't beat a rat in a fight, I reckon I could take a tired duck. Well, fifty five percent of people thought they could beat a goose. <laughs> oh, and I fuck thought, off! No, no, no that's those, those things are bastards.
1: They they're would ourselves. kill you. <laughs> they would break your arms. It would kill you, and it would laugh while it was doing so. Yeah.
0: They're very aggressive. I wouldn't fancy myself in a fight with a goose at all. You've been to Australia, Mickey. Mm Mm-hmm. 24% of people thought they could beat a kangaroo.
2: They're massive. They their feet are like, they kick you to
1: death. Yeah. Is that because they watched the Mighty Boosh episode where he takes on a kangaroo and you have to
0: squeeze their balls? I mean, that's just the boosh. I can only assume these people think that they must be allowed to have a gun or something in this. See, I think you're being too generous there. I just think they're idiots. Still, 31% of people think that they couldn't beat a cat in a fight. <laughs> and I actually... <laughs> exactly. They've clearly tried to... Who are to those put... people? They've clearly tried to put Joan in a basket before. Or <laughs> tried
1: to give Clarkie medication that clearly tastes horrific. I'm
2: Jennifer, and I am excited about never being pinged again. Probably. Possibly. Have you turned the app off? No, it's changed, doesn't it? It's all it's all change again. You don't have to self-isolate if you are if you've had two jabs from henceforth okay. Monday the sixteenth.
1: Forever. Later on, our resident music expert Liz Buckley attempts to cram a lot of info about the incredible Billy Holiday into a fifteen minute chat. Does she succeed? Find out. <laughs> I speak
2: to journalist and writer Sophie Hayward about her excellent book, The Hungover Games, and the trials and tribulations of getting accidentally knocked up. And in Journey Off the Blocks, I'll be rounding up the latest news in women's sport.
0: And all right, sweethearts, you know the drill. Arses and elbows, (laughs) what does any of that mean? But in this week's Rated or Dated, we're watching 1986's Aliens. But first,
2: terror at home, terror abroad and an uncharacteristic gesture of goodwill. It's
0: time for the Bush Telegraph. Q sting. Bush
3: Telegraph.
0: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Hell is empty and all the devils are here. Oh, dear. Sorry.
2: By now, ye will no doubt have heard of the tragic killing of five people last week in Plymouth after they were shot by 22-year-old Jake Davison, who injured two other people before turning the gun on himself. The first mass shooting in Britain in 11 years, Davison's victims were his mother, Maxine, aged 51, 43-year-old Lee Martin and his three-year-old daughter, Sophie, 59-year-old Stephen Washington and 66-year-old Kate Shepherd. Davison was a licensed firearms holder, though it transpired that prior to the attack, he had written posts about mass shootings and made threats on social media. He had also had his licence revoked in September last year after he was accused of assault. And the Independent Office for Police Conduct is now investigating why the licence and his gun were returned to him last month. In the aftermath of the event, the police were quick to rule out terrorism. However, questions have been asked as to why given that Davison, who referred to himself as an involuntary celibate in social media posts or incel, had also made a number of misogynistic posts, including videos lamenting his virginity and speaking of his hatred for his mother, among other things. The incel movement, if you want to call it that, follows a violent misogyny that holds women responsible for withholding sex and relationships from men, which they believe is a human right. Let's look now at the definition of terrorism as used Mm. by the Crown Prosecution Service, which is the use or threat of action for the purpose of advancing a political, religious, racial or ideological cause. Mm. Speaking to the Guardian about the decision not to classify the incident as terrorist, rather the police's decision, that is, Jonathan Hall QC, the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, said that depending on the evidence, inceldom definitely can be an ideology for the purpose, Of terrorism, however, this was an issue of scale. You don't want to get too many people being labelled terrorists because then people can get demoralised. Well, fucking hell,
0: let's not demoralise people, eh? Yeah, that's the last thing we need.
2: Why does it even matter, I hear you ask? Well, Institutions, organisations, governments put a fuck-tonne of resources into preventing terrorism, as well as sending clear messages in policy, legislation and sentencing that it will not be tolerated by society. But don't worry, lads, because Hall reckons if there are more attacks of this nature, they probably will be classified as terror-related. To me, this is a far more ambiguous message about the safety of and violence towards, specifically, women.
0: (sighs) Yeah. 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 I mean, what can you say? So let's move on to something equally awful. You know, we're used to writing things that age quickly, you know, write a bit about Boris Johnson's plans for lockdown or opening up. And there's generally a press conference within an hour of us recording that changes the complexion of the story in some way. I'm not sure any story has changed with the terrifying speed of the US's withdrawal from Afghanistan, where any progress made in the last 20 years seems to have been wiped out in a matter of days. Nothing would make me happier than to be in the situation where recording this on Monday means I didn't know what was going to be happening on Wednesday. But here we are with the Taliban firmly back in charge and chaos at airports as people, especially those who worked for or with the deposed government or the US military, attempt to flee the country. Who is to blame for this shit show? Well that's a complex question I certainly can't answer in the time I have here but what I can say is that America seems to have learned nothing from the fall of Saigon or perhaps I can say even more cynically that it did but it doesn't care. As ever women and children are going to pay the highest price for decisions made by predominantly men thousands of miles away liberty stolen dreams gone futures changed beyond all measure. This weekend, I spent some time in the company of some children, recently fled from Kandahar with their parents. I can't say much more about who they are or where they are now living because I didn't meet them in a professional capacity and because I don't really want to draw any more attention to their location given that they've been the subject of some obscenely racist social media posts already. But what I can say is that watching them play with toys donated by a local scout pack in clothes donated from a local church while my phone buzzed with the news alert that Kabul had fallen was quite a profound experience. And so what I want to say is this. We don't need to be helpless bystanders in this. There are dozens of small acts of kindness we can make to try to improve the lives of ordinary people who are either trapped in Afghanistan or have fled. Number one, we can give aid groups on the ground our money. Feel free to do your own research, but Save the Children's Emergency Peerless accepting donations, as are Women for Women International. You can also help at a community level if refugees are being housed locally to you. And finally, and this is the absolute bare minimum, you can call out the spreading of ill informed bollocks on Facebook about little kids who are merely fleeing a brutal regime.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I saw, um, probably everyone's seen it by now, but uh, fair play, I didn't know who Ben Wallace was until this morning, but um, he's the defence secretary,
0: by the way. (laughs) I was thinking, uh, is he that guy that does the (laughs) bake-off?
2: No, I, I didn't know either, but that's thanks thanks modern politics. <laughs> You're all shit and we don't know who you are. Anyway, he was on Nick Ferrari's show on LBC Radio and there's a little video of that this morning doing the rounds and he, he starts crying he, and actually crying, not like Matt Hancock crying, like actually chokes up because he says that he knows that not all of the people trying to get out of Afghanistan are going to get out of Afghanistan.
0: No, they're not. No. And like I say, I mean, people who know anything about history, this this has happened Mm. before. Mm. This has literally happened before. If anybody can find it, I think it might be on Netflix actually, Last Days in Vietnam, which is Rory Kennedy's documentary about the fall of Saigon, is incredible and really probably quite depressing (laughs) watching at the moment because it's just about how things just spiralled out of control in such a short space of time. I was recording something else that I'm doing, which now is not the time for that conversation. But we were talking about why Americans were so obsessed with the Second World War. And this is before this happened. But even then I said it's because it was a war with an ending, you know, because they left it and they'd won. Mm. And that's so rare that Americans have that in their history, that they have something that ended definitively and, well, <laughs> definitively and positively rather than in just descending into absolute fucking chaos Mm.
2: regardless of whether or not you think we went in there for the right or wrong reasons or or anything about that i think we Mm. can all appreciate this is just it's just shit it's a really really fucking shit situation so
0: hannah would you like some good news oh my god i mean i say yes every time
2: but i don't know that i've ever meant it more jen a new breast cancer treatment has been approved for routine use on the NHS, benefiting thousands of women. Yes, you heard right. Hooray. It was initially rejected as it was not cost effective or, if you prefer, too expensive, and has now been made available after the drugs maker, Eli Lilly, offered the drug at a discounted rate. Yes. Yes. You heard right. Blimey. Yeah. The drug is used on patients with advanced breast cancer who have already had endocrine therapy. And the news has been welcomed by experts who said it would delay the need for chemotherapy and improve the quality
0: of life for those who take it. Yeah, don't even get me started on the cost of fucking drugs. (laughs) It's good news, Anna. Yeah, exactly. Yes, hooray. 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 More news and hopefully better news next week pray for the like the gods of returned animals or or whatever (laughs) yeah yeah well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where we ask what does a woman need to do to be taken seriously by the police and why the answer is in many cases sadly die Last week, the Independent Office for Police Conduct, IOPC, found that Lincolnshire Police had not failed in any of their standards during multiple contacts with 23-year-old Daniela Espirito Santo from Grantham, who died while on hold reporting a domestic assault. A report by the IOPC detailed seven calls from Ms Espirito Santo about her partner, Julio Jesus, Between May 2019 and April 2020, her final 999 call took place on the 8th of April 2020 when she reported being attacked just hours after Jesus was released on police bail for an assault earlier the same day in which he pinned her down and pushed his arm against her throat. The 999 call handler deemed the call non-urgent as Jesus was no longer in the home and told Miss Espirito Santo to call back on the non-emergency 101 number. Eight minutes later, a non-emergency call handler answered and could hear only a baby crying. Police forced entry to Miss Espirito Santo's flat where they found her dead on the sofa still holding her six-month-old son. Jesus was charged with manslaughter, a charge that was dropped due to a lack of evidence linking the attack and her death. He was instead charged with assault and jail for 10 months. However, the IOPC said there was, quote, a learning recommendation in relation to the need for a force-wide written policy on when to transfer calls directly to the non-emergency 101 service rather than asking people to call back themselves and any actions to be taken by 999 operators when taking that action. A domestic homicide review, which is a multi-agency review of the circumstances in which a person's death has or appears to have resulted from violence, abuse or neglect by a person to whom they were in an intimate relationship, is underway. Is that enough response to this senseless and needless death? Not according to Charlie Price Wallace, a friend of Miss Espirito Santo's, who has called for greater protection for victims of domestic abuse who are scared to press charges against their partners. And she said, quote, They had a record of seven incidents which contained 10 attacks that Danny had disclosed and yet didn't see a pattern or do anything about it. We need to make sure her name means something and that she didn't die in vain. Well said, Charlie, for standing up for your friend and for countless other women in this horrible situation. Please, for the love of God, will somebody listen to her?
2: Wow, Okay, so you have to do more than die, apparently, to be taken seriously by the legal system in this country. Well, that's good news for all of us, isn't it?
0: Yeah.
1: Hello, I am joined by my pal, your pal, And most importantly for the podcast, music's pal, Liz Buckley.
0: (laughs) Hello. Hello. Hi, Hi.
1: pals. (laughs) You're right in my face. I like it. Hi, I'm really near. (laughs) So Liz, I know you like a challenge and (laughs) this time I have set you what I have now decided was probably an impossible challenge and that is to cover Billie Holiday in, what, 15 minutes? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, she did a lot. And also everybody's got different stories about her, including her. So trying to tease out what really happened is almost impossible, really. But, you know, she was a self mythologizer as well. So that's part of the fun. You know, she only had a very short life, but my God, she packed so much into it there's an interview she did uh, where somebody said to her why do you think so many jazz artists die young and she said i guess we just try and live a hundred days in one day and she certainly lived that so shall we start with her music because i am not a jazz fan but i adore billy holiday mm. and i think you're the same aren't you yeah i mean jazz isn't my normal bag although that i wouldn't necessarily want to pin a badge on myself and say that but like yeah i mean she's a bit of a rock star really so i think she probably appeals in lots of ways that perhaps other jazz musicians don't you know she's hard as nails (laughs) (laughs) I mean she lived through Jim Crow laws and uh, her upbringing is insane and everything that she had to do. I mean, she's not given enough kudos, really, for being a civil rights activist. More emphasis is put on the fact that, you know, she was a drug addict and the heroin sort of story is way heavy on her legacy. But she's singing protest songs long before Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Nina Simone or anybody's like that around. You know, she's huge in the 1930s. Yeah. She was the first female black singer, I think, to front a white band in the South. Can you imagine what that tour was like? Horrifying, terrifying, huge, all of those things. Yeah, I think the answer is, Liz, no, I can't, I can't actually (laughs) imagine. Yeah, exactly, and neither can I. I think it's way beyond anything that any of us can even understand nearly a century on. But, like, you know, she wasn't allowed to go to the toilet when they were getting off the tour bus. She wasn't allowed to stay in the same motels. She wasn't allowed to eat in diners. She wasn't allowed to sit on the bandstand. She would sleep on the bus because she wasn't allowed to bed. You know, uh, people would heckle her. People would throw things at her. She faced it all out. And actually Fair Place at Artie Shaw's band, who she was touring with, they would fight for her. Yeah. So, you know, all of them would be like, right, if if lady's not coming in, then we're not coming in, kind of thing. And actually she was feisty as fuck. But like, on those tours, she was like, oh, I'm not getting killed over a hamburger so actually she didn't necessarily want these white guys kind of going, no, you've got to come in the front door, you're not going through the kitchen. She was like, I'll pick my battle, thanks very exactly. much. Exactly, so. it's easy for them to pick a battle for her when that yeah. is not the way to do it. In fact, it. she used to buy two hamburgers and she was like, I'll have one later, put it behind me. Behind her ear, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that she wasn't able to, uh, you know, she certainly had her own fights. You you won't like this because it involves rats and we're sitting very near your very precious rats. Yes. But her cousin once waved a rat in her face in order to upset her and she hit him with a baseball bat. So. The cousin or the rat? The cousin. Oh, you know. Oh, okay. I wouldn't be telling you if it wasn't righteous. <laughs> <laughs> she was righteous, wasn't she? I think that is a really good word for her, even though she was so... Flawed, so human, so troubled. Yeah, she was. She was very, very, I would say she was principled and very, very proud. Artie Shaw's band, actually, I think they ended up playing in New York some quite prestigious gigs. And then it became much harder for her to front the band. It wasn't, you know, not necessarily as accepted in the fancier, higher end of the money. So she was having to use this uh, service elevators rather than the, the normal one in the hotel and stuff like that. And, you know, that's a massive affront to her. So she was like, I'm off, I'm, i quit the band because I'm not being treated equally. And for a black lady to be saying something like that in the 1930s, that is incredible self-respect. The song Strange Fruit, which is based on a poem, is quite often referred to as the sort of touch paper for civil rights yeah i mean it it was i I don't think necessarily it's it's understood quite how incredible it was that she was brave enough to Mm -hmm. sing it because i mean like there would literally be riots after she sang it it was that inflammatory and that upsetting to some people because you know like The context of she was singing cabaret in Harlem was largely black entertainers playing to white crowds who wanted to be entertained and they're playing for their chicken dinner. And suddenly she's singing about lynchings and it was it was very, very emotive. And, um, you know, it would be pretty much something that followed her entire life. So she was dogged by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics who followed her around her entire life, largely not because of her drug addiction, but because she was singing Strange Fruit. And, yeah. uh, you know, the fact that that would stir such strong feelings in people. And it was felt like, you know, who is this bitch that feels that she can do this? So she would perform it in a a different way, like she would say, everything I sing I feel, and if I don't feel it I wouldn't sing it, so just singing a song in a certain way is exercises, whereas this is pure emotion, and that's why I think it hit home so strongly with people. I mean, the lyrics are... I mean, it's only 12 lines. Yeah. It's awful, (laughs) powerful lines. Yeah. So to quote some of it, then uh, I, I imagine an awful lot of your listeners are going to be very familiar with it anyway, but it's so powerful. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, fruit on the leaves and blood on the roof. Black bodies, just in case you're in any doubt about what she's describing. Yeah. Swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees and she was signed to Columbia at the time and they didn't want to do it so she's one of their biggest artists and they're like no thank you that's not something we want to be part of so she was allowed to do a one-off with Commodore Records and release it with them instead and you know her belief in it was such that she was like I, I'm going to do this and I'm going you know like having a record contract was a very big deal but she felt so strongly that she wanted to do it and so it goes on, the bulging eyes and twisted mouth in verse 2. I mean, swinging bodies, a scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, and then sudden smell of burning flesh. So nobody could pretend that they didn't know what she was talking about. And at the time um, when she was singing, the lyn- lynching bill wasn't even considered by the Senate until 1937, and it wasn't passed. Yeah, they refused to pass it. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it was still really incredibly raw. It ended up winning um, a Grammy in 1978. That's how much later the recognition for how important it was. Wow. And uh, Time magazine called it the Song of the Century. But these are things she would never get to see or hear or realise, you know. I mean, by the time she died, she was out of print. I kind of love that uh, she's still essential and remembered and you know she, she's actually nominated 23 grammys after she died because people suddenly realize how relevant and important she is to put some sort of context on what she was up against like do people understand how brave and revolutionary an act it was to sing a song i mean it's clearly protest songs are not the sort of thing people expect to be entertained by in a club She was shot at, leaving at one club. Bullets in the side of her Cadillac when she left. But people wanted to hear it. It was a song that people requested and shouted out and requested during her concerts. Yeah, but she had to take a view on it every single time. Mm. Can I face it? Is it the right mood? How's it going to go down? You know, what consequences are they going to... I mean, like, she was imprisoned over and over again in her lifetime, all for various different things. But largely, that was the reason, you know, like, trying to hobble her in any which way they could because she had power singing that song gave her power and it it is one of her biggest selling songs and even at the time that was dumbed down as well the b-side was a jukebox hit so (laughs) everyone was after the the b-side oh yeah that was the the other side that was just an accident right yeah (laughs) yeah and also it was such a powerful effect on her too she quite often was physically sick after she sang it you know, you can tell from her delivery just how very much she meant it. And she said it reminded her of what, how her dad was treated. So, her dad died of TB and he wasn't admitted to hospital. He went round various different hospitals and they wouldn't let him in. And so she would always think of him when she was singing it and the sort of injustice of that. And actually, I, I mean, other people have covered it, but I would say it's hers. It's inseparable from her. There's an entire book about the history of strange fruit and there's various myths surrounding it. Nina Simone, Jeff Buckley, Susie Sue, they've all covered it. Stop it, <laughs> don't. Stop <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Quick message to any musicians thinking of covering Strange Fruit. No. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a no. Incorrect. Yeah. And I think it's really powerful what you said about her taking power from it, but also feeling frightened by it and feeling so emotionally moved by it that it would make her sick because, mm-hmm. of course, it would make her feel sick I I can't I can't imagine it and I'm very aware we're two white women talking about this incredible civil rights activist actually that in itself is interesting there's a recent documentary I think it's still on iPlayer if people are interested there's a journalist that was collating interviews of Billy long after she died but people who are still around collecting stories and the journalist that was putting all this together died in mysterious circumstances so she's following sort of basically Billy's story and her connection with the Federal Bureau and, you know, like all of the sort of slightly seedier side of what she had to put up with. And she was found on the street, having fallen out of a window under very suspicious circumstances. So even in this day and age, Billy's legacy is, you you know, this is how dangerous she's felt to be. A journalist who doesn't leave a note and her family don't believe that's what happened to her. I think people have this, or some people have this idea that if you are powerful and Billie Holiday was powerful because she had fame and she had fans that that means you you're not frightened that you're untouchable Mm. but I think she was clearly frightened every single day I presume she was I wouldn't want to speak on her behalf I presume she was I don't know she her autobiography which I heartily recommend is quite a force I mean the stories are just unbelievable and it's one thing after another I mean just even a couple of pages in i mean she's born to a mother who's 13 to parents that aren't married and uh she's already calling people cocksuckers on page one (laughs) i like her i'm just gonna go on record i like her a lot we've already established we're both big fans (laughs) she's ending up sleeping in a bed with a cousin who's trying to rape her the neighbor tries to rape her she ends up in prison at 10 years old Because somebody tried to rape her and they want her a witness report, so she has to stay there. She ends up in a Catholic institution where they try to correct her for having been the victim of a crime. Big up to the Catholic Church. (laughs) (laughs) There's somebody who breaks their neck And then she's made to go and sleep next to a dead body. I think that's all on one page as well. It's relentless. Her great grandmother, who grew up on a plantation and had like sixteen kids by the plantation owner, uh, was her favourite relation, and she died holding Billy, and was had rigor mortis, so Billy couldn't get free. It's just absolutely non-stop trauma. (laughs) Yeah, I stand by the fact that she was probably terrified every day of her life. (laughs) That's too much, Liz. And I know, obviously, you can come from the happiest childhood or the happiest circumstances and still become an addict because it's an illness. But no wonder she sought some sort of comfort, some sort of oblivion. Well, and also it's context. I mean, pot was legal. Uh, You're living through prohibition, which automatically makes alcohol much more appealing. Mm -hmm. Um, You're in a, a world of musicians, so, you know, she's... On the road, she's getting no sleep. It's all of those trappings. But also every time she actually got busted, she was in a hotel. They knew where she lived, but she was a user. She wasn't a trafficker, which really wasn't that serious a crime, so they could never really get anything on her. So the time she did get in prison was largely she got drugs planted on her because they were so determined to bring her down. And usually it was one of her husbands working with the Federal Bureau against her for money Along with all this madness And the numbing And the upset And everything I mean her mum was incredible Her mum was absolutely phenomenal Billy actually ended up Teaching her mum to read and write Her mum's I remember Only 13 years older than her So yeah. not a huge age gap But her mum You know with all of the problems That you have Of being a black Single parent In the age that we're talking about She literally broke down Doors for Billy. Like she rescued her From the man that was Sexually assaulting her By breaking the front door down She was a maid for a lot of the life, her mum, but very rich white families. Quite often she'd get the rich white families to get lawyers to help Billy, to drive and pick her up when she was in trouble. She put her in various different accommodations that were safe. Yeah, she hired people to help her. Her mum was there for her every step of the way. And when Billy gets towards the end of her life, and I think she knew she was getting towards the end of her life even though she was only very young, she starts thinking about what her legacy is in terms of her personality, not necessarily her music. And she really wanted to open an orphanage, and she wanted to instill in orphans, number one, that drugs are bad, so she's not celebrating all that. Mm -hmm. She's like, they brought me nothing. All the success I had, they did nothing but impede it. And she wanted that to sort of be shared. But also, she wanted to fill it with people like her mum, that would teach the kids that, you you know, what you are is brilliant. And she wanted more people to know that, (laughs) and to have that strength of character. So I get that she was going through hell and was frightened but i also think she was strong as fuck actually yeah (laughs) i mean like she's always portrayed as a victim you know she there was domestic abuse in her life there's all you know like we're talking about an era where managers are abusive the husbands are abusive she's literally got pimps in her life you know she's getting beaten up left right and center but she's also throwing them she learnt boxing at school she was handy and she tended to gravitate towards people that could help her The men in her life were the people that could get her club bookings. They would be the people that could get her Carnegie Hall sellouts. They would be people that could put her on Broadway. So, you know, she's someone going, right, how do I sell out on Broadway even though I'm a black woman in the 1930s? Yeah, she's not a puppet. No, absolutely not, and um, she does manage to get rid of most of them, you know, like, there's a lot of, you know, sneaking out of hotels in stockinged feet, but she's got a mink under it <laughs> <laughs> That voice, though, Liz, it remains incredible. It is a voice that just sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty unique, really. It's sad, and it's sensual, and it's totally individual. It's it's an instrument really, it's a whole mm. part I think. And also she you know, she never learnt to read music but she did her own arrangements. So it's just that natural talent that so few people have where she could just sing and it's it's innate and uncopyable, which is probably why Strange Fruit is so much her own. I mean she was pitted against Ella Fitzgerald quite a lot in her lifetime, but um they still were friends. You can try and make people rivals, but if you're individual enough, then there's no competition. Oh, God, nothing changes women being pitted against each other when actually they're trying to hold each other up. It carries on, doesn't it? It's just easier to make a. I literally think so about Sarah Vaughan. <laughs> well, oh, apart from Sarah Vaughan, obviously. Billy, quite catty in her autobiography. Oh, my God, you know? unbelievable. But what's so really entertaining as well? When... Actually, in the Strange Fruit book, which is about the song rather than her, he says there's, there's the most misinformation per column inch of any book he's ever read and he said that to billy holiday and billy came back with i ain't ever read that book <laughs> yeah you know, she's sassy she's funny and she, the, the book is literally interviews with her it's conversation it's ghost written but it's conversations so you know it's all in her voice and there's also loads of contradictions within the book i find her really entertaining because she she does that things that so many friends of ours will do in the pub where they tell you a story and you go oh my god that's unbelievable like rather famously actually she didn't really get any royalties during her lifetime whilst that's sort of quite shocking in a modern context actually at the time that's really not unusual Mm. you know for white men work for hire was quite common at that time so you get paid a fee for your session but she'll sort of say you know she, she was a lyricist she composed so the fact that she got nothing not just for performing but also for uh, compositions is a bit more shocking but you know and that would stir me up and be like oh i'm really upset for her and then she'll say apart from decker <laughs> 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 and she does that all the time where she you know there's this sort of whipping up of like a good story and it's like, oh by the way that didn't quite happen like that but it doesn't matter <laughs> She was an entertainer through and through. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, I was kind of amused at my own lack of uh, coolness as well, because she calls everyone a cat. Of course, she does. She's in the jazz world, but every <laughs> single time, I mean, honestly, it's her favourite word, and it just kept tripping me up because I'm not cool and I'm not jazz. So when she goes, "I went to live with all these great cats," I'm like, "Cool." <laughs> Cats, no <laughs> oh this really cool white cat turns up with a trumpet a cat with a trumpet oh no <laughs> oh god i really want to see like liz liz reading that autobiography it's <laughs> like liz watching the disney version of What's the, the billy cats holiday story that's amazing maybe that's oh, why silly. you aren't a huge jazz fan Like <laughs> you're not having to put a badge on or anything but it's because you're disappointed there aren't any actual cats <laughs> there's a really nice bit where she talks about um, because she grew up listening to Louis Armstrong who she obviously became really great mates with Mm -hmm. and you know they sang together and stuff. She found scat appealing because there's no lyrics and it's all about feeling so that's what appealed to her where she's like you know while he's kind of going you know she's not thinking oh that's impressive she's thinking oh I could feel anything when you're singing that because the lyrics aren't there. So while Strange Fruit is incredibly powerful because of the words and it's a poem so for Performing the words are more important than anything. The scatting was also really important because she's conveying feeling that you could put on top and make it your own. So the lack of lyrics was also a strength for her. She she said she didn't realise it's because Louis Armstrong had forgotten the words. (laughs) (laughs) Same with Doc of the Bay, by the way. The whistling because he forgot the words. Anyway, what an incredible cover up. So, Liz, your 15 minutes are up. Oh, more than up, I think. What do you want people to take away about Billie Holiday? There's a recent biopic, not not the documentary, there's a biopic, a Hollywood thing, which again is full of myth and misinformation, but also gets the essence of it, so it is good. But they said, wouldn't your life just be easier if you behaved? And I thought, OK, that, that. I really love the fact that she didn't behave. She was quite wild, and that's fantastic in an age where you're not allowed to be wild. So please everybody go and buy her box set because I think it'd be fantastic if she just keeps on being relevant for as long as possible.
2: I'm joined by journalist and author of The Hungover Games, Sophie Hayward. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jen. Thank you very much for joining me. You are here today to talk about your book, which has just been published in paperback. It's it's really, really an excellent, excellent read. So just to start by blowing all of the smoke up your backside, it's excellent. <laughs> you. Can you please tell the listeners, for those who don't know, what yeah. it is about?
3: Okay, it's my true story. So it's nonfiction, it's a memoir. Of what happened when I went to live in Hollywood about ten years ago, and was hanging out with celebrities and having what felt like a lovely, exciting life. Although I was probably quite lost in myself and partying too much, and pretending that the passage of time was not happening, and that people all around me were not sort of getting married and having babies because I'd never worked out how to hold down a relationship at all by that point. And then at thirty-four, I spent a night in a hotel with a musician I I knew. And having just been told by a doctor who'd done some investigations on me for a, for another reason, that I was infertile and couldn't get pregnant. So I spent one reckless night in a hotel having cried for a week at the discovery that life had caught up with me. And I was now past being able to have children. And of course, that night I got pregnant <laughs> <laughs> because medical science is not quite, you know, what it always purports to be. So I then found myself with... A sort of miracle baby but I was renting a flat in Hollywood on my own and very much single and living a sort of unsustainable life so I kept the baby I flew back to London when I was six months pregnant didn't have anywhere to live slept on my friend's sofa surrounded by his sort of weird taxidermy animal collection so there were sort of fetuses in jars and sort of stuffed giraffes staring at me on this sofa in Hackney as I wondered why <laughs> decision but i did find a place to live in london and i did become a single mum and raise a child so it's a sort of riches to rags possibly to riches again <laughs> the story of that and i've been banned from calling it a memoir i've never heard that before memoir amazing but i googled it and i think i think it's my term i think if i was allowed to use it more i'd go down in history as the
2: coiner of the term memoir i'd do it i say why not <laughs> better than mumfluencer yeah, no, I don't want to be one of those. Definitely not one of those, no. So on the podcast, I share lots of details about my life routinely and, and don't really think about it. And then every now and again, someone will be like, oh, this thing is like, how do you know about that? And you're like, because oh, I said it on the yeah. internet, told yeah. everyone. And as you point out in the book, it's not just your story. And it is a very personal story, obviously, for you and, and other people involved. So I just sort of wondered... For you, what the line is. It's hard.
3: I mean, you know, I, well, as you can read in the
2: Hunger Games,
3: I had a baby with someone who, you know, was not prepared for that. I had told him I couldn't get pregnant. He quite rightly, you know, would have taken precautions and always did had he not been convinced that he could not get this person pregnant. That was not the life he had planned at all. So it put us both in a very difficult situation and. You know, I basically did it on my own after that. But he is still a real person with feelings of his own. And I didn't say too much about him because he's a real person. It's not my story to talk about someone who is still living and finding their own way in things. And also our story has actually moved on, since. you know, even in the brief period since I finished the book. We've made our own sort of happy reckoning with the situation together. I don't mean as a couple, but, you know, things have moved on. So it was very important to leave that space open for him. Yeah, there's also other people in the book, like my mum, my dad, you know, it's it's really hard putting your parents in a book. I'm pleased to say that people keep saying, oh my God, your mum's such a legend, you know. Oh, I loved your dad in the book. The bit where he takes the baby, oh, you know, made me cry. So I'm glad because I wasn't sort of, you know, milky sweet about my parents. I wasn't just kind of going, oh, they're the most amazing grandparents in the world. There's a real emotional fight that goes on between me and my mum in that book and that goes on between us in real life and I didn't want to make it sentimental
2: but it's hard because you know those people are still my parents to whom I owe a lot. There's there's a bit which I don't I don't want to give I don't want to tell anyone anything that happens <laughs> because I want them all to read it but um, there's, there's a line in it that your mum tells you after you tell her that you're pregnant which made me cry honestly I burst into tears because I think really, yeah it, it made me cry and then and then like the next the next entity reveals,
3: like, I reveal where she's plagiarized brilliant. the line <laughs>
2: and it's, it's brilliant
3: my mum said she read the book I was a bit like oh my
2: god she's gonna read it I think what
3: she said was I don't remember saying that but it sounds like something I would <laughs> say I mean, I remember because the phone call where you're in L.A. on your own, single, on a flimsy work visa with no proper health insurance, the bit where you phone your parents in Yorkshire,
2: Mm.
3: tell them that you're pregnant by someone who, you know, means very little to them. You do remember every single (laughs) word of that phone call. So she might have been in the sort of shock where afterwards you put the phone down and think, what's just happened? But Mm. to write the book, it was good for me that I
2: do have total recall of some of those quite sort of precious moments. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the single mum aspect of it because single mums get a kind of pretty tough rap in representations basically across the board. But it was slightly different. Like When I was having my daughter and I sort of told people about it, a lot of people kind of said to me things like, oh, it's, you know, it's great that you're going to have, like, all the control in the situation, basically, in in the parenting or whatever, or, like, oh, you know, you'll be, like, this really great little unit and, um, you know, it'll be, like, a really lovely thing. And, and I wondered what you thought, because that sort of comes from this quite middle-class space, and I wondered if you thought that there is quite a... I don't know, it's almost sort of romanticised. Do you think there's a kind of a class divide there? I think single mum as a term can be synonymous with poverty
3: and possibly it should be. I think it's something like 67% of British single parents or, or you know, major single parents, most of whom are women, are on or below. You know, the, the agreed poverty line in this country, but there's also an awful lot of people who got divorced and are now a single parent. And that, that can happen in any income bracket, in any class bracket. I mean, all of it, all of it can happen, you know, getting pregnant from one night stand can happen to absolutely anybody. Sometimes I think it's good that single mum is synonymous with poverty because that situation is being heard and noticed. But I think also it can be misleading. You know, I've had a sort of slightly chaotic life with my daughter. You know, I ran out of money, but me running out of money with a sort of middle-class background behind me is not the same as someone who has no cushion. So I think the whole class thing's quite interesting. To answer your point, if it's romantic, yeah, I think that's partly why I wrote the book. I think someone said to me when my daughter was little, oh, I'm going to go alone, you know, you two just have such a lovely, fun time. And I thought, well, we do, but we also don't. And maybe Instagram's not telling the full story, you know, maybe I need to delve into the darkness as well as the light a bit more with this
2: the thing about getting pregnant accidentally because obviously that Mm. happened to you and that has happened to me and since it happened to me I've become aware that it is way more common for women in their 30s to accidentally get pregnant than... Because it's the kind of thing that you sort of think happens to teenagers. I remember my own auntie said to me, oh, come on, you know how it works, don't you? Like, you're you're an adult. How has this happened to you? You've obviously done it on purpose, basically.
3: There's a a lot of assumption you've done it on purpose. And there's also the sort of assumption that you would have learnt because you maybe got pregnant in your 20s or teens or something. I mean, sure, but personally, that's the one time I've been pregnant in my whole life. So you sort of don't think it's going to happen to you.
2: Because it is, like, surprisingly common, or, or I've mm-hmm. I've found that to be the case since I got pregnant myself. I wondered, have you had loads of people like me now sort of saying to you, like, oh, my God, your book is about my life? I
3: have, yeah. It's interesting, and I almost wonder if it's because... um. You know, some people have such a tough time with fertility and go on such, sort of you know, years of IVF and that kind of stuff. And it can work and it often doesn't work. I wonder if we've become so aware of the pain of that recently that sort of announcing, oh, I just got pregnant, you know, like that, without meaning to. I wonder if you feel a bit flippant or guilty. It's a bit like this is a terrible comparison, but it's a bit like when people say to me, like, oh, no, I'm a single mum too this week because, you know, he's gone away to do this job in Atlanta and
2: you're like you're not a single one because <laughs> <laughs> that week will end yeah and has he gone there to earn money to pay for your house yeah yeah you're not a single one <laughs> but one of the things you talk about in the book as well is the shame that you felt
3: yeah I think I still feel it and you know what's hilarious a friend of mine the other day they they caught up with me about somebody we used to know and I said how how is she doing and she said, oh, yeah, she went to live in L.A. And I said, oh, did she, really? And she said, yeah, and she's got pregnant by this guy, but um, he's a, he left her when she was pregnant and she's had the baby on her own. And I literally instantly went, oh, my God, what a mess. And then my friend was like, <laughs> Sophie, that's what happened to you. And I went, right, right, yes, yes, that is exactly what... <laughs> like Like, I was actually still able to pass judgment on on exact situation. I mean, it's so ingrained. It's so ingrained, the judgment on
2: something like that. Yeah, it really is. So the book isn't just about, as you said before, it's a memoir. It's not just about pregnancy is not just about your experience as a single mom. it's about you know it covers your work life it covers other relationships and you talk about things like when you were pregnant before you had your daughter you were trying to rent a flat and you know how tough it was for for you to be able to do that and and the various loops and you had to jump through and lies you had to tell and I had to lie through my teeth because I was single and I wasn't unemployed but I was a
3: freelance journalist with a massive bump and no husband. And um they just look at you funny the minute you walk in. They're like, so you don't have a fixed salary and you're not married and look at the state of you, kind of.
2: How tough do you think society still is for single women, let alone single pregnant women?
3: I don't know. I'm sort of loath to feed that particular beast, I think, and say it's hard for single women. I mean I never I don't know, maybe it's my background, although my background was, you know, reasonably normal, average. I didn't have this thing where everyone's always saying to you, when are you going to have a baby? I mean, maybe it's because I was 34 when I got pregnant, not 44. But I haven't lived that life where people were sort of expecting me to be married. <laughs> if they didn't think I was marriageable, I don't know. But I don't know, I think you can resist all of that. I think
2: I resist it. And there's a section where you talk about self-help books and life as a, again kind of like as a single woman and, and sort of navigating relationships with men I remember once buying a book why men love bitches right which I'm very I, embarrassed yes, to admit but yes, I do I've read that and also you talk about uh, the one that you reference is he's just not that into you which is just like oh the worst thing in the world and obviously you have a daughter now and I yeah. wondered what the one piece of advice or wisdom not necessarily about dating or relationships but just about kind of navigating the world as a woman I guess what would be the one piece of advice or wisdom that you want to impart upon her
3: yeah I do think about this a lot and I haven't quite distilled it into the perfect sentence yet but there's something (laughs) about walking in your own glory and being glorious you know I remember as a teenager being sort of hung up on those things you think about like well I've got big thighs so that's not going to work you know this you get this nonsense math in your head of like well I've got big thighs so like that means I can't be attractive that means a boy won't, that means whatever you know I, mean, I remember seeing this young woman maybe she was about 19 walking into a, a room I was in a stranger and she just had this amazing sort of vibe about it. She was just glorious. And I remember noting afterwards, like, oh, no, she's got bigger thighs. You know, that's the judgmental. I don't think she's got bigger thighs than me. How? How does that work then? Because she's gorgeous. And I remember just suddenly realizing as a teenager, oh, it's it's what she carries. It's this wonderful spirit she has about it. It's really not the width of her legs. And I hadn't realised that before. And I just think there's something so attractive about somebody walking into a room in their own stead and and carrying their own life. As I said, I haven't quite got one sentence from this yet, but I remember for years trying to attract men by thinking, right, what's he into? He's really into that kind of indie music. I'll become like a geek about that kind of indie music. And I'd get really good at it and I'd know all the bands to reference and I'd be able to like sit there in like some sort of smoking area with some boy and get all the references right and really impress him. And then you'd go off with some girl who said, oh God, I don't really anything about indie music. And I'd think, uh, the injustice, how can that be? But that girl had something to offer, which was that she was totally herself. And I don't think people are looking for someone to be their mirror or reflect them. I think we we are attracted to people who... Are very much sort of vibrating with their own humanity. Haven't got that through to a nine-year-old yet, but I'm I'm working on
2: it. Sophie, obviously, the book has done it's done quite well. It's a bestseller. Yay. Congratulations! Yay. It, it, again, it's it's so good. It's so funny, and it's so warm, and it's so it just readable i absolutely recommend that people go out and indeed read it what's next for you what have you got on the horizon surely someone's going to make this into a film yes me me (gasps) well i sold the um i sold the tv rights to a
3: really good production company who i think i don't know for some reason we haven't done the press release yet so i won't name them but they're brilliant anyway we are writing the script at the moment and i was involved on a sort of exec producer way, whereas on all these zooms, and we were interviewing all these brilliant screenwriters. And because I had said from the start I'm not a screenwriter, I don't ask me to do it. I've been told that that way madness lies. Hire a professional screenwriter. I can't adapt it, but I'll be involved. And we had zoom after zoom with some brilliant writers, and they'd have a few ideas for how to put it on the screen, and. <laughs> I think I was meant to be silent in these meetings, just like a sort of, you know, governor on the panel. And I kept on going, yeah, but don't you think if she comes in this room and, you know, in the book, it starts there in L.A., but actually where I thought we could start the TV show and then it can come and then he could be. And then after a sort of month or so, of these interviews, the producers were like, you really do want to write this script yourself and we really do want to hire you. So then the company I sold the rights to sort of hired me back, which was quite funny. So I'm working on the script as we speak and that will be exciting, really exciting. Uh, It's a two book deal actually. So I also have to write a sequel, which I am also working on right now, which I, well, I kind of know what it's about, but I'm not really good at explaining, but definitely love is involved in there and how we live and how we love.
2: If it's anything nearly as, yeah, as good as The Hungover Games, then I am very excited to read that when... That's what I'm
3: hoping for. Nearly as good.
2: (laughs) Sophie, where can we follow you so we can keep up to date with what you're doing? Oh, so
3: I just use my surname on social media because it's a bit weird spelling so no one else has got it, apart from my poor brother and mum who don't get a look in there on the socials because I nicked it. So Haywood is spelt H-E-A-W-O-O-D. looks like he would... And um, I'm
2: just called Haywood and everything. Sophie, thank you so much for talking to me. No,
3: thank you. It's been
2: wonderful.
3: You play
2: ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we mount our trusty steed and hope for the best. Oh, I, As we discuss all things women's sport. I want to open with some news that is not really news because in fact it's a decision that was taken quite some time ago, I think maybe April this year. However, I've only just heard about it because of our success in the Olympics, a point I will elaborate on in a minute. And it seemed churlish not to include it now that I know that our very own Hannah Dunleavy has an interest in this great sport herself. Anyway, this discovery is that the modern pentathlon will take a different format at the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris. It's going to be condensed into just 90 minutes for a more compelling viewing experience. What? And to put that in context, it was squeezed down to five hours for the Tokyo Olympics, apparently. Five hours, guys. Anyway, Team GB gold medalist Kate French told the Telegraph women's sport that personally I don't think it needs to be changed. The response we've had for this Olympics has been really good and I think it works great as it is. People really did enjoy it. It was the first time it had been in one stadium which I thought looked amazing. Now, obviously, I agree with her, but also she makes the point that there are some pretty epic kit changes going on between the different events to remind you fencing, swimming, running, shooting and show jumping. And they're going to be condensing the breaks between those events down in order to bring the overall sport time down. And I have to agree, that is quite a lot to manage. Save the modern pentathlon, I say, albeit quite a bit later than would have actually been, you know, useful. But you know, no one reports on Olympic sports outside the Olympics. A top tip for you then to keep on top of all the niche sports interests you've developed over the summer is inside the InsideTheGames.biz, which is a website which does exactly that. And on the homepage today, they've got a Georgian judoka, a Jordanian taekwondo fighter and a weightlifting constitutional crisis. And I'm here for it. Not the crisis, you understand. Yes to diverse sports coverage. So while we're on the subject, congratulations to Ryan O'Toole of the USA who won her first LPGA Tour title at the weekend on her 228th attempt at the Scottish Open and that's golf, FYI. The 34-year-old has subsequently said she might shelve her plans to retire. She says, I don't know if I could stop playing golf now. Fair play. When you think of that whirlwind of excitement and rampant sexism, I'm not sure I could give up a gender pay gap of over 500% either. I'm talking about the disparity in prize money for the men's and women's Scottish Opens. The total prize pot for the women's event was £1.5 million, while their male counterparts played for £8 million just five weeks earlier. And that has grown for the men by £1 million in the last four years while the Women's Prize Fund has stayed exactly the same. Even inflation hates women, apparently, and benefits, to be fair. But, well, also, yeah, again, women. England's Georgia Hall, who finished 40th on the leaderboard, and just FYI her compatriot Charlie Hull finished 5th, was quick to point this out in a recent interview, also with the Telegraph Women's Sport. and she said equality has to be the aspiration. Women's golf is as important as men's, and why shouldn't it be? Well, that prize fund tells a different story, doesn't it? A bit more news. Firstly, that has been announced this week that there will be no spectators at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo starting next week as the city continues to try and curb its COVID-19 cases. Fans are also asked to stay away from road events. I don't think this is huge news. Fans weren't allowed in for the events in the capital at the Olympics either, though some venues in other regions were allowed up to 50% capacity. Perhaps sadder news is that it has also been confirmed in the wake of the Taliban taking power of Afghanistan, as you've heard us talk about in the Bush Telegraph this week. They will no longer be represented at the Games, which means that the historic first appearance of a female athlete from Afghanistan at the Paralympics, which was due to take place, will obviously no longer do so, and that is, you know, also very sad. So let's end on a high because news sucks, doesn't it? And back to boring old brilliant football which is about to resume in the women's game. And Sky Sports and BBC have now announced their coverage plans for the Women's Super League. If you've got Sky, good news, you'll be able to watch every single WSL club in action during the opening five rounds. The BBC's coverage starts on September the 4th with Everton v Manchester City, which promises to be a good one, and will show another four matches between September and October, as well as host the return of the women's football show on a Sunday night. Who needs sleep anyway, right? That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport.
1: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film that we watched this week really drove home the message, don't fuck with mums, particularly if they've got a flamethrower?
2: Well, I mean, you have basically just summarised everything I was going to say. So <laughs>
0: Sorry. It was, you were going to keep it short, weren't you?
2: <laughs> this week, I projected all of my emotions onto 1986's <laughs> Aliens, which turns 35 this month. It is, of course, a sequel, which we don't do very often in Rated or Dated, but I think it works as a standalone film, and I'll come back to that. It's a follow-up to Ridley Scott's thinking man's, woman's, obviously, in inverted commas, science fiction horror, alien, just the one like, and James Cameron is at the helm of this science fiction action, but also pretty horrific, (laughs) as writer and director. And I don't think this is a spoiler, given the not very imaginative name, but we are absolutely fucking chock-a-block with aliens in this (laughs) follow-up. Cards on the table, I think it's better, or at least more entertaining than the original. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I am a basic bitch. (laughs) We join our hero, Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, as the only survivor of the first alien rampage, in some sort of never-ending cryo-sleep drifting through space. Well... 57 years, which, to be honest, after my weekend actually seemed like quite a nice idea. (laughs) Ripley's tales of face-hugging aliens don't go down too well with her employer, the Wayland yutani Corporation, who are pissed off that she trashed their ship to get away from it and leave her spacey location of LV-426, which is some kind of moon slash planet. They think that she's making it up, because they've had a colony on LV426 for a little while now, and so they are so pissed off that she faces a lifetime of moving boxes for them. But hang about, they've actually recently lost contact with the colony. But why? So, Ripley earns herself the possibility of a reprieve if she agrees to go back once more onto the breach with slimeball Wayland representative Carter Burke, played by Paul Reiser, to investigate. He is so fucking sweaty he is sweaty he's sweaty by nature isn't he he's a sweaty man cut
1: him he bleeds sweat
2: <laughs> the ragtag bunch joining them includes a droid called bishop played by lance hemrickson to be honest i think they could have given him better hair given that he could have had any hair who yeah. <laughs> hey, ripley doesn't want <laughs> he's got terrible hair come on man he's a synthetic you could have done better
1: Uh, He prefers the term artificial person, Jen. Come on. I've seen better weaves
2: on Paul McCartney. (laughs) Anyway, Ripley doesn't want him anywhere near her after Ian Holm malfunctioned in the first film. Also, various marines, the highlights of whom include double hard lady bastard Vasquez, played by Jeanette Goldstein, Really fucking annoying Hudson, played by Bill Paxton. I love Bill Paxton. And love interest, because you've got to have one, Dwayne Hicks, played by Michael Bean. And the rest of them are mostly lads, lads, lads of sort of like various degrees. On arrival at the colony, guess what? Some fucking aliens have been doing the rounds, who mostly come at night, mostly, according to Newt. The lone survivor, who is a little girl and is basically adopted and protected by Ripley as the crew are picked off one by one or indeed three by three. But can Ripley survive a face-off with Big Mama Alien, owner of many jaws and layer of many eggs, and steer them all back to safety again? So... A fun fact for you, there are a couple of different cuts of the film and the cut I watched didn't actually include the scenes where it's explained to Ripley that she's basically missed her daughter's entire life when she wakes up from her space sleep.
0: Yeah, it also didn't include the scenes where you see the family stumbling across the ship. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Which is like the worst day trip anybody's ever gone on, that he takes his kids out on a day trip to like just a desolate island. He goes, oh, here's a downed spaceship. Let's have a poke around. What could possibly go wrong? But the scene about her daughter,
2: I actually think is quite key information.
1: Yeah, it's a deleted scene though. It was never in the theatrical release.
2: Well, I remember, because I watched this film like a thousand times as a child because brothers, and I remember seeing that, scene in the versions that I watched. I was confused. it's in the director's cut for sure. But I think it's quite, I think it's quite key. Anyway, we'll come back with to you. that. Anyway, Weaver's real life mum, Elizabeth Inglis, played Ripley's daughter Amanda in those scenes. And this information led me to the following exchange with my mum on Saturday night. Mum, are we related to Sigourney Weaver? No, absolutely not. Sorry. The reason for this is because her mum's name is Inglis And her maiden name is Hunt, which are both names on my mum's side of the family and also nothing to do with my mum's side of the family. Born in Colchester. Big up Colchester. Right. I digress. The film was, (laughs) of course, a huge success. Estimates put its worldwide gross box office figure at around the sort of one fifty million dollars mark. Although that figure does vary quite a bit, depending on where you look at it, to be fair. The reviews were mixed, although Weaver's performance was pretty consistently praised and indeed she was nominated for an Oscar. Many critics were not on board with the film's violence and gore and to be fair it is pretty grim in that respect. Our old friend Roger Ebert described it as painfully unremittingly intense and said that he didn't actually really enjoy it very much and others said that without Weaver it's basically just a B-movie. Maybe they've got a point, but spoiler alert, I really enjoy it. That said, Hannah, I think you recently said in an episode of this very podcast that you think that this is a feminist film, and I remain unconvinced. Is that a good place to start? I have lots of thoughts.
0: I don't know that I think it's a feminist film. I mean, she clearly is a feminist character icon within that. She is like a strong, or perhaps the very epitome of a strong female lead. Mm -hmm, And in its defence, given that it's 1986, and I'm not a fan of James Cameron at all, but he did put women like front and centre. And it's worth pointing out that there are two other female characters in it. Well, three, if you include Newt. Like four, if you include the alien. So actually, he's kind of put his money where his mouth is in that sense. I think it's really key to include the alien. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the queen. But I don't know if it counts as a feminist film because it is so unrelentingly macho and gunny and just kind of Republican and America. Shit, yeah, I can't, yeah. I absolutely love Aliens
1: and watching it again did not take any of that away. It's such an excellent film. But the military dialogue is clunky as fuck. Mm. And I was like really aware of it this time around. I'm like, some of the lines, they are hilariously clunky, particularly the way the sergeant talks. And maybe that is how people talk in the military.
2: I don't really know. I mean, the main thing, obviously, well, it's just, it's all about motherhood, isn't it? The whole thing is about motherhood, basically, was what I took away from it. But like I said, I'm projecting my current
0: feelings onto this. No, I think it's pretty well accepted that it's about motherhood Jen.
2: It's just not very subtle And the subtle first at one's all, all
0: about reproduction. Personally, I prefer the first one. It's what appeals to me more as a film in as much as, you know, when you look at the first one and what the threat is, is so tiny compared to what the threat is in this, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. It's just everywhere. It's massive. I mean, it's really, really tiny in in the first one. But I think that adds to the eeriness of it. And that's something that speaks to me more than something that's like sh- a up, oh up yeah. gore-fest, personally. But um, I-, I think it's quite easy to take the mick out of. There's some bits that uh, the bits where I wish that I had somebody else watching it with me when I was watching it. Because there was just stuff that I was like, oh, I'd so be saying that aloud now <laughs> if there was someone sitting here. Like when Drake dies. Like, and he he basically he gets some acid blood thrown in his face and goes ah and then they pull her back in sanchez and they go leave him he's dead i thought i don't think he is (laughs) to be honest (laughs) it might have been kinder just to make sure he was dead because he's just going to be dragged off and turned into a cocoon in a live state yeah it's about motherhood but i
2: think it's also about like aggressive women isn't it and the sort of that's why I don't think it's necessarily that feminist because it's basically about like a massive preoccupation with motherhood and aggressive women and like sort of confused gender roles. Like Vasquez when they're like, has anyone ever confused you for a man? And she says, no, has anyone ever
1: confused you for a man? I just think that's shit women get when they don't conform Hmm. to society's arbitrary gender roles. So I don't know that it's got confused gender roles. I think. A lot of society have got confusion around that and don't like it when people break the mould of either sex. So I, I don't think it's about aggressive women. I'm interested if you've got more to add to that.
2: I think it's about like, I don't know. I think it's about, it's like the face hugger is basically an aggressive vag. That's what it is. That's what it looks like.
1: But all the xenomorphs are quite penile. What's the xenomorph? The main alien. Okay. Are they... The thing that bursts out of the chest.
2: Uh, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, they're
1: they're penile. They're hard and like stiff and yeah. So wow. there's there's bits of both there. And I guess yeah. if you're saying it's about aggressive women, all the men in it are really aggressive too. Isn't it just the situation demands
0: Yeah? Aggression? Except except Bill Paxton, who's like essentially the coward. Yeah. So Oh he's me. I'm if yeah, I that, was in the I mean, that he's that film. the most relatable person in it, yeah, exactly. Totally yeah
2: i've for a long time thought that the uh the facehuggers are not very subtly aggressive vaggers and i wonder what that is supposed to be saying if it's not about the fear of aggressive women or aggressive sexuality or something like that
1: i think it's the horror of biology isn't it the whole of the first one is all it's about reproduction and it's it's the alien gets birthed through a man Mm. so it's the gore and the bloodiness that you know Giving birth is pretty horrific. I know. As I'm sure you know more than I do in like in real terms. But yeah, I think that the first one is all about or certainly has that theme of being about reproduction and how frightened men are of women's ability to reproduce.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what I sort of mean by
1: it. I don't think that makes women aggressive though.
2: I don't think it's necessarily saying at all times that aggressive women are bad, but I do think that is a theme that runs throughout it.
0: Can I ask a question about something you said? Mm. You described Hicks as a love interest, yeah.
2: Yeah, because they flirt with each other massively,
1: wildly. Do they?
2: Yes. I think he's meant to be a love interest. I've always thought that.
1: See, I think Newt's her love interest. Yeah, yeah, she is,
2: but in a very different way. Like, she doesn't flirt with Newt and she does flirt with Hicks.
0: I don't know if that's flirting. I think that's just just getting on. You can get on with a man without... You like can, big... but I don't think that's what they're doing, personally. That's not how I'd see it when I watch it. That's interesting. That's not how I would see it, because I would think the very last thing you would need to burden her with was, was <laughs> a love interest in that in that scenario. Can I just say also, because it needs saying, is that, that this is absolutely just riddled with just stupidness, though. In parts, it makes huge, like, huge narrative mistakes. There are things within, like the, the acid blood, You know, which can drip through the floors but doesn't take the tyres of their car out. You know, Mm. there are just a number of things that are just dumb as hell in Mm. this. So it's got bits that I just don't think make a huge amount of sense. I don't understand how the aliens managed to cut the power either. But um, I just have this image of one of them up at a circuit board.
1: <laughs> I think it's the same one who later works out how to use a lift. Yeah, right? Exactly. That's <laughs> my other question. How does one get in the lift? I don't know. It's, it's She's smart. The queen is really smart, but you're right. It feels like a sort of very fast evolutionary step for yeah. this creature. But it's so much fun. I'm it I'm is fun. with Jen on this one. I do love the first Alien and I didn't see any of these till I was a woman in my thirties. And my friend Nathan was so distraught that I hadn't seen Alien, Aliens and Alien Three that he set up a little home cinema and he made basically us a den so that we could watch it in the real dark 'cause, you know, to get the real emotion of the film and the, the psychological drama of it. And I love Alien. I think it's great and it is much more psychological. But I I do really love Aliens because it's just really fun.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a totally different film. I think.
0: And also what adds to the kind of funness now is that the effects like just don't stand up and how quite clearly... I think
1: they do I stand up. I think some up. of them do. Oh, I, the think the aliens, stuff, I think the aliens the space stuff Great.
0: looks terrible. The aliens themselves look better but the the stuff in space just... I mean it's 1986 of course it looks god awful. There is But there shot. are parts where you just see that that's a man in a suit quite clearly when they just walk in there are parts where the aliens just walk in and you're like the alien with a swagger (laughs) dude in a suit suit.
1: there are a couple of little scuttle movements where i'm like yeah that's a dude in a suit maybe a dudette in a suit i don't know but sometimes i think that about dogs i think some dogs look like men in suits so maybe some aliens would look like a, a man in a suit
2: I think the thing with Newt is obviously, like, it's one of the main points of it. But I think, like, she's, like, proper obsessed with Newt. And I wonder, because there is... I mean, obviously, if you see a child, probably you want to kind of protect it a little bit. But there's not, like, any kind of bond between them, particularly. And she does put herself in an extraordinary amount of peril for the sake of Newt. And I just wondered, with no attachment whatsoever to this person... Would you actually, like, how many people would actually do that, like, faced with that situation?
0: I think most people would attempt to save a child if they could.
2: I think they'd attempt to save her if they could, but I think that she goes quite extremely down that path on a number of occasions.
1: I think you're both right and I think what's key is something you said earlier Jen and it's that scene that isn't in everything and that missing scene where she's told her daughter is dead now and there's also the key bit that is still in like the release that we've clearly all watched recently and that is when Paul Reiser says to her oh you know and there's families there and that's what makes her go back she goes there's families so it's that connection. Also, we've seen a maternal instinct in Alien. The reason she survives is she fucks off to find the cat. She wants to mm. rescue the mm. vulnerable. So it's sort of a follow on from her personality from the first one as well, I think.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that is why it's a key scene. I'm surprised. So
1: that... Yeah, it's so weird. The other
2: thing I was going to say about it is that the scene at the end, I think is just fucking epic, like still. I really enjoyed watching it, although it did stress me out enormously. And it also made me quite sad because then you know what happens in Alien 3. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, I've watched it so many times. I found it a little bit like, I don't know if it reminds me of itself or other films like it slash parodies of it.
1: I think Alien and Aliens absolutely changed the mould of what you could do in space and what you could do with a horror film. What's interesting for me, might be slightly tangential to what you've just asked Jen, so apologies, is I, like Hannah, like you, I'm a little bit windy about horror films. Mm. I'm not someone who would go and seek them out. No. So that's why I hadn't watched Alien and Aliens until I was in my 30s. But I don't find them scary. No. I don't think they're scary, but... Roger Ebert's review was like he was terrified by it he found it really intense and I actually thought it was quite funny
2: it's gory like it's jumpy as well but I don't think it's particularly scary but I think Alien is very eerie Mm.
0: yeah I mean I was pretty young when I watched it when it came out on video you know my Mm. dad would have gone and got it from the video shop and I would have watched it and I don't recall ever being scared by it
2: I think I was sub 10 years old when I first watched it because calf uh yeah not apparently really really not good at this uh parental control over what i was watching and i don't remember being scared of it either like as a 10 year old I, I must have been a bit scared of the aliens because they are a bit scary
1: the bit that made me laugh most yesterday when i watched it is when she's all in a cargo load of transformer gear and, and the queen's right in front of her and then the extra little mouse yeah. just
2: goes
1: <laughs> 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 I'm like you know it can do that you know she can do that That's amazing.
2: I wasn't expecting it, despite having seen it a thousand times before. I was like, what (laughs) the fuck is that? Let's ask the question, shall we? Rated or dated?
1: I think it's rated.
0: Well, I'm kind of ambivalent about it as a film, but yeah, there's nothing in it that says dated to me and it is what it is. So yeah, rated. I agree. Rated.
1: What are we watching next time? Jen, you and I, and apologies in advance because it is another horror, but you and I are watching An American Werewolf in London. I think that actually is scary, isn't it?
0: It's hilarious. It's I'm hilarious. sad I'm not going to be here to do it. I won't be able to tell you my fun fact.
1: Email me and I'll try to do an impression of you because that's what the listeners want. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.